This podcast is sponsored by Active Skin Repair, a skin health company helping people heal with non-toxic medical-grade ingredients. Active Skin Repair can be used to treat a wide range of skin issues, including cuts, scrapes, burns, sunburns, rashes, diaper rashes, and other types of skin damage. I discovered Active Skin Repair and their baby spray from my community when our daughter was a newborn and had constant diaper rashes, and it really helped and continues to help. Containing hypochlorous acid, which is an effective option for helping with yeast diaper rashes, we just spray or dab active skin repair onto the skin with a clean cloth or cotton ball let's sit for 15 seconds and then apply our balm or ointment of choice with over 500,000 happy customers and thousands of five-star reviews you now have one simple solution for all of your family's skin health needs visit www.activeskinrepair.com to learn more about active skin repair and to get 20% off your order using code PEDSDOC that's p-e-d-s-d-o-c Hello and welcome to this week's episode where I am welcoming Dr. Renee Rodriguez Paro, who is a board certified pediatric cardiologist and is on Instagram as Dr. Renee Paro. And I welcome her today to talk about how you can keep your kids' heart healthy from a young age in honor of American Heart Month. Thank you for being here today, Dr. Paro. I'm so excited to be here. Well, I'm going to be calling you Renee during the rest of the episode, but I am so glad that we got to connect on Instagram. You are one of the first doctors I started following when I got on Instagram. I love what you share in terms of mommy life, but I also love what you share in terms of your fitness journey um, and obviously as a pediatric cardiologist. So why did you become a pediatric cardiologist? So first of all, I'm very excited to have connected with you as well, Mona. You're a fantastic pediatrician. And if one thing um, pediatric subspecialists know for sure is that pediatricians are the backbone of our specialty. So we I appreciate all that you do and all that my pediatric colleagues do. Um, but you. so pediatric cardiology, um, kind of, it was, it was a bit circuitous. Um, I think I came into it a little later than a lot of pediatric cardiologists that I've met who have kind of found out about the field early on and kind of knew for a long time that they wanted to do that. From a young age, I wanted to be a doctor. I um, got a chance to be uh, in the delivery room of one of my aunts when I was eight years old. And so from there, I knew I got that sensation that I think a lot of us get when we are in medicine, that this is like a really cool thing and interesting in it, liked being in the hospital liked that setting. Um, and then when I went to med school, thought maybe OB, maybe peds, um, my mom owned a preschool, owns a preschool. And I taught a lot of her preschool all through high school and really liked kids and like figuring out how to make them comfortable, how to interact with them, how to, you know, connect with them. And I really actually liked the adult parent relationship as well. So I really liked, um, you know, having discussions with the parents about certain things about their kid and kind of how do how do you frame that in a good way where they don't get upset. And so when I went to med school, I had was pretty sure it's going to be between one of the two. And then I rotated through OB and I liked it, but I didn't love it. And I rotated through peds and loved it. So I knew peds was what I wanted to do um, going in. And so when I matched in pediatrics, I, I did have a suspicion that I was subspecialized. Um, initially thinking GI. Uh, and then I 
did my first rotation as an intern on pediatric cardiology, and I was smitten, like loved it. A lot of it is very, I think, certain threads came through, like a lot of it's very surgical. You're interacting with interventionalists and surgeons a lot. Um, and so I liked that, you know, I, I really liked that from when I was in my surgery training. And there are facets of OB in pediatric cardiology as well. So which I have included in my practice now. So we do fetal echocardiography, and we do a lot of pre um, delivery planning with parents who or who, with moms who are going to be having a um, child with congenital heart disease. So at facets of all the things I sort of had thought I may like along the way, sort of were all intertwined in this specialty. And so it seemed like the perfect fit for me. And that's why I chose it. I love it. And thank you so much for your love for general pediatricians, you know, for everyone listening. We work so closely with our subspecialists in pediatrics, so the physicians, but also we, I've had, you know, developmental specialists like speech therapists and physical therapists. It's all a team. We all need each other, right? General pediatricians are the first line. And then we need our cardiologists to, you know, help for any concerns. We need those extra, you know, pair of eyes sometimes or extra stethoscope <laughs> to take a listen and make sure, you know, are we hearing what we're hearing? So I am so glad that you're able to come on. Besides, you know, you're talking about doing like fetal echo, um, you know, fetal echoes. What other things do you do as a pediatric cardiologist that maybe our listeners may not know you do? Uh, so it's a pretty um, broad specialty. And what's funny is that a lot of times, well, I guess not funny, but understandable when you when I say I'm a pediatric cardiologist to people, their first <laughs> their facial expression is always like, oh, my God. That must be so sad and terrible. And I'm like, actually, it's really not. You know, the majority of the time when I my patients come into my clinic don't actually have cardiac disease. You know, a lot of, in, in general, pediatric cardiology, there is a subset of my patients who have congenital heart defects, and I follow them lifelong, you know, sort of a ga running the gamut of a small hole in the heart to the, you know, the blood vessels are transposed to half of the heart is missing, like lots of those things. Um and those kids generally actually tend to do pretty well. And a lot of times people wouldn't even know that they have heart disease um, with how well they do. But so, but a lot, but the bulk majority of my practice is really, um, it comes from pedi my pediatric colleagues. So, you know, there's heart murmurs, a heart murmur that sounds maybe, maybe could be innocent, but maybe isn't really, and really like, just like you said, want an extra set of ears, somebody who really, you know, specializes in this. And, and um, so heart murmurs, chest pain, passing out, um, a lot of family history of illness. So that's a big thing that I see a lot. So family history of someone who's had an arrhythmia or has a cardiomyopathy, which is, you know, an abnormality of the heart muscle tissue, or, um, you know, any, any of those things. And because a lot of, um, a lot of times what we're realizing now is a lot of heart disease that is found in adulthood or, you know, young, um, young adulthood is genetic. So we have to start screening the children of that. So um, a lot of, I'd say probably about 40, 40% 40 of my practice is just through, you know, something is found either through the history or the physical exam um, through the p general pediatric offices. And, and then, you know, another part, which you sort of elucidated, um, is really more about prevention. Um, and that's a, obviously a very growing field everywhere um, because our lifestyle uh, is very poor for heart health um, in general. And so, um, you know, childhood obesity is skyrocketing, like heart disease is 
before COVID was the number one killer of men and women in our country. We know that the disease that is acquired heart disease in adulthood, for the most part, is really from a lifestyle of how you exercise, eat, sleep, all of those things. And so I'd say probably another 30 30, 40% of my practice is prevention. Um, and I see these kids with, um, you know, patients who, who um, do have obesity or elevated weight or high blood pressure or um, prediabetes or high cholesterol. And then I t- just do a lot of nutrition counseling and heart counseling and why these things are important. And when I had asked my followers on my Instagram, hey, do you want to talk, do you want us to talk about congenital heart disease or how to keep your kids heart healthy? Most people voted for this, which is why we're talking about this on the episode. But so many of my congenital heart disease families DM me and they're like, please, 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 you guys have to talk about this again. So I know I'll have you back on to talk about congenital heart disease because so many of my followers either had it themselves as children or their child has it. So I think that's so great. Uh, But that's a great segue to talk about how we as parents can help keep our kids' heart healthy, talking about the increased incidence of obesity and high cholesterol. What can we do as parents now for our little ones? I think the most important thing with everything we do as parents is modeling good behavior. Um, And I say this, you know, because it is, kids are going to do what they, they're going to believe what they see more than they believe what you say. And so if you're telling them like you need to be eating a you need to be eating a lot of vegetables, but you as a parent are not eating a lot of vegetables, then they're going to wonder they're they're smarter than we give them credit for and they're going to they're going to point that out and they're going to recognize that. And so it really starts with us as parents and modeling the behavior. Um I also want to always try to make sure that people understand that developmentally when kids start to reject certain foods, specifically fruits and like vegetables, when, you know, I hear this all the time, like, well, they were a great eater. They ate all vegetables, you know, when they were pureed and when they were, when they were one and two, and then all of a sudden at like a certain age, they stopped eating the green beans I gave them and they stopped eating the broccoli and they didn't. And so, so I think that parents take that as a they just don't like these foods versus, and I'm sure you see this, versus they are exerting control. And kids want to exert control wherever they have the ability to exert control. And so at this stage, it's super important not to remove those foods from their diet. You don't have to force it on them, but it always should be there and available. And I think just talking with kids at a, at a level where you think like maybe it's too over their head, but like, this is why we eat broccoli because broccoli is really good for your heart. What does your heart do? Your heart pumps blood to your body. Your heart is always beating. It's always taking care of you. So your heart's taking care of you. So we got to take care of our hearts and just having these discussions like, and don't eliminate those foods from their diet. Cause I think that's what happens a lot is that they don't get it. They throw it on the ground. They don't want to eat it, but you have to keep giving it to them because eventually they will start having those foods. And if they're on their plate, they'll put them in their mouth passively over time. But what happens a lot of times is parents will take it out and it's really then hard to reintroduce it again when they haven't had it for a long time. 
Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factors No Prep No Mess meals. Chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factors fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from each week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. Crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients you can trust. I absolutely love the spicy jalapeno, lime cheddar chicken, and mushroom chicken thighs with wild rice. Keep kitchen time to a minimum with Factor Meals because they're ready in two minutes, no shopping, prepping, cooking, or cleanup. I work from home and love the convenience and how delicious Factor Meals are. Head to factormeals.com slash peedsdoctalk50 and use code peedsdoctalk50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code peedsdoctalk50 at factormeals.com slash peedsdoctalk50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. As a pediatrician, mom, and podcaster, I want to share with you a podcast I recently discovered. It's called Understood Explains, and this season of the show is hosted by teacher and special education expert Juliana Ortube, and it's all about how to navigate individual education plans, also known as IEPs. The latest season of Understood Explains covers topics like how to tell if your child needs an IEP, and it busts common myths about special education. I listened to an episode called The Difference Between IEPs and 504 plans, and I learned so much that I honestly didn't know before. I now feel I can better explain these to my patients and their families and better support them in their neurodiversity journey. Navigating ADHD, dyslexia, and other learning and thinking differences can be confusing, and this podcast helps to validate these struggles and provide actionable tips that are useful for parents, teachers, and clinicians. To listen to Understood Explains, search for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's Understood explains. Oh, I agree. The introduction of veggies, like from a young age, I actually, we have a rule in our house that Ryan gets exposed to a veggie at every lunch and dinner. So we rotate the veggies around. It's not a lot. It's not like we're giving him so many fancy obscure veggies. It's like your traditional broccoli, green beans, peas, carrots, but we absolutely introduce a veggie at every lunch and dinner and every breakfast he gets a fruit. Sometimes he gets fruit for a snack. And we've done this since he started solids. And yes, you're right that they may flip a switch and all of a sudden he may start throwing that veggie on the ground that he used to love, but it's the exposure. It's the not giving up. It's the not saying, well, he or she doesn't like it. So I'm just not going to do it because of course children will love, we call it, you know, around the beige foods, they'll love the starchy foods. Everyone does, but yeah, you're right. Like, I mean, it is about exposure and that is one thing for sure that I wish more parents would hear about the exposure to veggies from a young age and not giving up. You're not shoving it down their face, but you are exposing them and saying, Hey, I see that you may not like it. Just it's on your plate. No huffing and puffing if they don't. No, well, why won't you eat this if they don't? No bribery. Literally just letting it be there and letting them just see it and touch it. And maybe they'll smell it one day. And maybe they'll just say ew one day, but one day they'll actually put it to their lips. And so that is victory. The exposure mm-hmm. is the victory. Because mm-hmm. um, your children are great veggie eaters, right? Yeah, but they give us help. They do. Yeah, and I'm going to be honest with you. They They don't want to have it but they but it is through obviously their mom is a ridiculously like insane vegetable fanatic but like yeah. you know but I always go I, I really do firmly believe that if we give kids a reason behind why we are telling them to do something or asking them to do something um 
they are more likely to do it as they grow. And I always talk to parents in clinic about this, like their frontal lobes are not yet formed. They don't have executive decision-making. They don't have the ability to understand that like when I'm 60, this is going to be important. They have zero capability of doing that. And so what we really have to do is really kind of make short-term connections about things that are important for them, drawing tangible conclusions between how they feel. And that could be like, if you have a, you know, late, like a late kid, like, uh, you know, older kid, like my son's age, who's like eight, you know, he's talking about like wanting to run long distances or keep up with his friends. And I'm always tying that back to like, Hey, you know what, how we eat, and feel our body has a lot to do with how we can run, how fast we can run and how, you know, well we can do these specific things. And so mm-hmm. I think that trying to kind of show kids that if you do this, this, especially if they, if they're showing interest in something or want something to be different, how, if they focus on what they're eating, it could actually benefit that thing that they are looking for. Well, I love that you said this, right? Because telling a child, like you said, Hey, I don't want you to have a, a heart pro- heart problem when you're older because that's the goal here, right? We want to keep them heart healthy, but they don't understand that, nor do they care about the in, the future. They care about now, who am I? What am I going to do? Can I play with my friends? What's going on? So the way you talk about that, right? How are they feeling? Is it helping them poop? Is it helping them run faster? I think that's such a great way to look at it because the now is what they care about way more. So obviously, I, we talk about veggies, and I love that you just you didn't even just mention eat veggies. You talked about how to introduce the veggies and how to keep persistent with it, because I think that's the key here. Besides eating vegetables, what other things can a parent do to encourage that heart health from a young age? Um, so, you know, I, I really, I, I do like to make nutrition the cornerstone because I do think that so many people um, get into this mindset and as adults that like, well, I exercise a lot. And so, and I have, you know, I've had, yeah. unfortunately, I've had a lot of I've had several families who've come in whose kids get checked for cholesterol because dad died suddenly mm-hmm. and it was uh, unexpected. You know, I've had a couple where dad was one tragic case where dad was out going for a run on Father's Day and died in the middle of this run and, you know, just just awful things. And then the kids get check for their cholesterol. They see their cholesterol is elevated and everybody's just baffled. They're like, he ran every day and he was so active, but if you really, you know, it didn't smoke and all these things, but then if you really go back to like, how was nutrition, it wasn't very. Mm-hmm. And so I think a lot of people still are in this mindset that you can out exercise what you eat. And that's just not true. So exercise is vital. And I don't want to ever give the impression that that is not something that is important. But nutrition really is probably 60 to 70% of how important, probably even more than that, honestly, how well you're, how, how healthy you're living to protect your heart health. And so I do think that it's really important to have that as a focus. Um, And and because it's very often that I see this scenario where a family is just devastated by somebody dying very early who they wouldn't have thought would have mm-hmm. an unhealthy heart based off of how active they are. Um, so, you know, 
so sort of just to blend a little bit more to that point with the nutrition, I think that I think it's just important to realize that that at the end of the day, we really do need to be focusing on that as the primary way to make sure we're protecting our health long term. So in addition to that, um, exercise, exercise is extremely important. Um, and, and something that I think I want to get across as well to people is that in kids, exercise looks a little different than adults. You know, in adulthood, we think like going on a three mile run, or we think going, you know, going and doing a hit workout or a Peloton bike ride or something else like that. Yeah. It's different for kids, you know, kids getting up and being at school and moving around. Another reason why I'm like, they have to get back into school. You know, just kids being kids are like little energizer bunnies, especially when they're at school. They're running around and they're playing on the playground. They're doing the monkey bars. They're ju- they're just constantly on the go. And for that, for them, is um, that's exercise. That's that is their form of you know burning off those things. And so, you know, what do you do? And you may, people may have questions right now, especially with. Um, in COVID times where we don't have that option in a lot of ways, or the, you know, swimming classes aren't open and gymnastics not open, all these types of things are not open. Um, I think we undervalue the importance of just getting up and moving for long periods of time. Um, And that could just be going on a long walk, like going, you know, having the goal of hitting like 10,000 steps a day for everyone. If everyone was working on hitting 10,000 steps a day, that would be more than adequate to get in the amount of activity that most people need. Um, And so I think that just valuing getting up and doing something small and also just not, I try to tell families that like the, as for older kids and teens, like the length of a workout is honestly, I, I think we put need to put less value on how long somebody works out versus how frequently we're working out. So living an active lifestyle mm-hmm. where we're focusing on trying to get in 20 to 30 minutes of strenuous activity, you know, that could be like, or, or 10,000 steps a day, like six days a week. So really trying to focus on behaviors and routines that promote consistent consistency and being active throughout the day versus, you know, trying to get them to be in, you know, do like an hour long workout and they're only going to do it once a week. And then after that, they're going to just not do anything. So, um, so that, you know, that, so I think activity, being active, doing things that get you off of sitting on the couch and off of just, you know, being very, very sedentary is really important. And another thing that is something I know pediatricians are always talking about with their parents, sleep. Sleep Mm -hmm. is so important. It is so undervalued in our society and I think is wreaking havoc on people's health all over the place. Absolutely. Um, And sleep habits start early. Good sleep and having your kids learn how to sleep starts early. And so I, you know, I think like being very, um, very from an early age, being very much like this is your bedtime. We're turning off your electronics. You know, this is something I counsel my teens on a lot. You need to power everything down 30 to 40 minutes before you go to bed. Phone is not in your room. TV is not in your room. iPad, computer, all of that. It means all of your screens are off 30 to 40 minutes before you go to bed because it takes that long for your brain to shut down for you to actually go to sleep. Yeah. And so, and, and starting that from a, you know, a young age, kids have a bedtime, having them be, you know, even right now, like we gave Juliet this, so that's not even a screen. It's like this little, um, this little player, like she could stick these cards in. it's called a Yodo player. And I gave it to her for Christmas because I thought she'd like it. And she's been 
staying up like so late just listening to these things. So now now we cut that off. We're like, okay, you can you have to stop with your Yodo player at eight o'clock because you need to get to bed earlier. So adequate sleep is really important. And if you know if you're noticing that your kid is waking up multiple times a night bringing that up to your provider. Like maybe they have obstructive sleep apnea. Maybe yeah. they need to get a sleep study. Maybe, you know, figuring out if some, if, I, if your child is not sleeping well is super important. Um, and sort of the tie it all up. The last thing I always cover in my visits is stress. I think that we don't talk enough about stress. Um, we don't, um, most of us don't manage stress very well. We haven't really learned how to manage stress really well. And so I um, I think coming up with ways to think about our mental health from a very young age is really important as well. It's just as important as exercising our body for our physical health. Addressing our sleep and our stress for mental health is just as important. And so, you know, I talk a lot about like, how do we look at life? Are we grateful for the things we have? Are we, you know, are we looking at things from an optimistic lens? Do you, um, you know, what do you like to do as a hobby, especially in like the teen years when kids um, give up all of these things for SATs and ACTs and AP classes and they just completely stop their sports and they stop doing everything they like. You know, I really try to talk with like tapping back into those things. Like, what do you like to do? Do you like to draw? Do you like to paint? Do you like to create music? Do you like to dance? Like, and really kind of, get at because everybody has something that really gets them into a de-stress type of zone and and I and I encourage that I say you know okay how does it feel when you're when you're um drawing does it feel like time just passes without you being able to even imagine you're doing it for an hour and you're like how I felt like five minutes and like yeah you know you're in a flow state and that's actually helping you reduce your stress so an hour of doodling for you is not wasted time it's actually benefiting your stress levels and lowering your stress levels. So I think it's just like all of those little things. If we can think, I, I heard a, you know, I read a book a long time that was like the four pillars of health are nutrition, exercise, sleep, and stress. Mm -hmm. And if we could be thinking about how we're taking care of all of those things, you know, for, for all of us, but the younger we teach it to our kids, the better and more, you know, helpful it will be for their heart health for the future. And all of those things are interconnected. We know that, right? Like if you don't get good sleep, mm -hmm. you're going to make poor choices in what you eat. You're going to be more stressed. You're going to more less likely want to work out because you're not getting sleep. And everything is a vicious cycle, right? Like mm -hmm. that balance is so important. And you said it earlier that the modeling that we have to do as parents is hard. I cannot tell you how many times I have parents bringing their child in telling me that I need to tell the child, hey, you need to do X, Y, and Z. And I ask the parent, I'm like, well, what are you doing? I'm like, what are you yep. doing in your house? And I, in a nice way, right? I'm telling them. And I, I give that tough love because I think it's important that parents look inside themselves and say, what can I change? Am I using my screens right before bedtime? Am I eating this food that maybe I should balance a little bit more? Am I not prioritizing exercise to help reduce stress and um, you know, improve my heart health and improve my health overall? So that modeling is key. You said the four pillars of health. I One of my favorite things that I've seen is the six doctors. The six doctors are sunshine, water, rest, air, exercise, and diet. And it's so simple. Oh, I like that. <laughs> I love it. It's so simple to me because it's literally what I envision a quality of life. And I, you know, in America, I think we forget these essentials. I really do. I, I look at other countries mm -hmm. that don't have the rates of heart disease that we do, and especially developed countries that are not working as much as us, that have a little more balance with being able to do activities outdoors. And we are just working so much as Americans that it really 
it really affects our health. And like you said, the mental health has a huge component on the physical health. But I think this is such a great conversation because we can teach our children this from a young age by modeling it. And also not even just by telling them, well, I, so, I told you so, and that's why you're going to do it. In that moment saying, well, look at how amazing it makes you feel. I saw you running so fast and I'm so proud of the effort that you're putting into this or that or how you built something. And it's because you're doing so well with, you know, exercising and eating right. And I'm so proud of you. You know, you should be proud of yourself for what you're doing for mm-hmm. your body. You know, I always say like, I always tell my kids in my office, I'm like, you should be so proud of what you're doing. And they're like, I am proud versus I'm proud, <laughs> right? Like you are, you should be proud because you are doing an amazing thing for your health. Are there any other tests that are typically done? I know, obviously, I know that the cholesterol screening, but is there anything else that I'm missing? Because that's one screening test. Obviously, if a child is having a, you know, risk factors for diabetes, then we do do some screenings. But any other screening tests you'd want to tell our listeners about? So in 2011, the American Academy of Pediatrics came out with a recommendation that all children between the ages of 9 and 11 should undergo cholesterol screening. When it comes to raising kids, there's so much to consider. Things like, what do we feed them? When do we feed them? How do they sleep? What does it look like to raise kind kids? How does their nervous system work? How do I keep myself calm? What are my triggers? There's so much that comes into play. And we are distilling all of that information for you at Voices of Your Village podcast, where we bring experts in the field of early childhood and education and psychology and across the board so that you don't have to comb the internet for information. You get to show up and hang out and have shame-free, judgment-free conversations and insights into what it looks like to raise kind, empathetic, emotionally intelligent humans. I'm Alyssa Blask-Campbell. I have a master's degree in early childhood education. I'm a mom of two, and I am walking this journey right alongside you doing this work. Come hang out with me at Voices of Your Village, and we can dive into real conversations with actionable tips. Have you heard about the terrible twos or three-nagers? Yes, the toddler years can be tough. There is no denying that any phase of parenting can be really hard. There may be picky eating, tantrums, and struggles with potty training. But there is a lot of amazing things that you will see your toddler do during these years. I want you to enter the toddler years understanding toddler development and behavior so you can better approach tricky situations with your child. With resources on picky eating, potty training, tantrums, and other common toddler behavior like sleep refusal and toddler development, the toddler resources here at Peds Doc Talk aim to provide you with the knowledge you need to, dare I say, find some or a lot of enjoyment in the toddler years. For more on my on-demand courses, make sure to visit pedsdoctalk.com and check out resources for whatever you need. Have a friend? It also makes a perfect gift. Visit pedsdoctalk.com and click courses for more. If there is a family history of early coronary artery disease or high cholesterol in multiple family members, then you test a little earlier, probably between like six and eight. Um, I don't know that all practices actually really go with those guidelines. Um, but there is more screening than there previously used to be, um, which we are picking up a lot more kids who necessarily wouldn't have shown up on the radar of a pediatrician, their normal weight, the, you know, there isn't a really significant family history, but the blood test, you do the blood test and they have an LDL of 150 and it's like, what, you know, and it's shocking to, to the parents, to the kids. And the first thing I always hear from parents is like, how like I never got screened. Like, how are we 
like, I don't remember ever knowing my cholesterol levels when I was nine. And then I come back to say to them, the reason why we test now is because we have such a huge incidence of coronary artery disease in adulthood. So whenever we see something that's happening a lot in adulthood, and we know it can be linked back to something in childhood, we as pediatricians start to screen more of those things earlier, sort of like breast cancer prevention and colon cancer screening, all of those things to give a little more education. So there's, you know, two, really with most cholesterol panels, you get two of your bad cholesterols, which are triglycerides and your LDL cholesterol. Your um, triglycerides are tied a bit to heart health, um, but the main, the one that is a little bit more tar- tied to heart disease is the LDL cholesterol. But the, so it tests for both of those, and then your HDL cholesterol, which is your good cholesterol, which if it's low, is worrisome for heart disease. So you want that to be in a normal range or a high range. So definitely the cholesterol panel. Definitely, um, I usually recommend uh, fasting blood sugar and a hemoglobin A1C, both to see. You know, the hemoglobin A1C will tell us the measure of your heart, your blood cholesterol over a three-month period of time, a little bit more longer term. And the fasting fasting blood sugar does as well. But I, uh, you know, in the adult world, they use a lot of the hemoglobin A1C. So I end up asking for those two things. And then the last one um, is that I recommend usually is the um, – liver transaminases, so ALT and AST. And that's really to look to see if there's any evidence of fatty liver. Um, If the ALT is a little elevated when the cholesterol is elevated and a child is overweight, then that can be an indication that there's possible um, possibility of some fatty liver that is starting to develop. Um, so those are typically sort of the metabolic labs that I recommend. Um, I will sometimes recommend a thyroid um, panel if it's never been checked before, or if there's a significant family history or symptoms that seem like there could be some sort of thyroid issues that are going on. And a lot of times parents just like to have that checked um, when these things are sort of happening. And like Renee's saying, um, we your pediatrician is going to be the one to guide you through the screening process if you're concerned. So if you're like, do I need to get my child's um, liver functions checked or do I need to check their hemoglobin A1C, your doctor will look at their growth chart, family history, all of those things, which is why you need to go to your doctor uh, because they'll guide you um, outside of the recommendations of just the normal cholesterol screening that's done for all children. So many of my families come in and they deny the cholesterol screening at nine and 10 because they don't want to poke their child. And I actually say, like you said earlier, that that gentleman who who died running, who you know was very active and probably looked like he was healthy. We can't always, we're not going to be able to tell if a person has good heart health from the outside all the time, right? Meaning, especially in Indian Americans, I'm, I'm Indian, a lot of Indian Americans are super thin. And they don't have the best diets. And so when you look at that, the fat is only going one place. We joke. It's basically going to their arteries. And it's really important that we remember that for older adults, right? For children, I'm not concerned, like Renee said, like in the immediate that they're going to have uh, like high cholesterol in their arteries. But we don't want that for the future. And the cholesterol screening, I've picked up familial high cholesterol, meaning a family, it runs in the family. And so I would not deny those testing screenings, right? It's important, like Renee said, these are screenings that are done. If it's normal, great. If it's abnormal, we have to monitor that. And your doctor will guide you as to what the monitoring process would be given the levels. It doesn't mean that they have to come back every month. It means usually six months to a year, maybe not until another five years, depending on the number. But don't deny the screening test because as pediatricians, we don't do a lot of blood tests. So when you are being asked to do one, it's for a reason. And I would just say, do it. It's just for, to, to make sure. And if it's normal, it's normal. You know, something else we're learning through all of this um, is that there are 
probably a lot of genetic variations that we don't really know the full picture of when it comes to um, inherited cholesterol problems. Mm -hmm. There are, because this is true and we've seen it, you know, just in regular life that there are some people who eat terribly, you know, who just really take in a lot of like very high cholesterol foods and, and they're, they're not on statins and their cholesterol numbers are fine. And there's nobody in the family who has heart disease and all these things. And, and, and what I try to tell people is that all of us are on a different genetic variability. And so there are some people who actually you know, and I love like, I love the sort of practical, my practical vegan colleagues like Danielle Bellardo. like she, you know, she talks about this a lot. And in the vegan community, people who are not eating pretty much any cholesterol, especially people who don't want to have like olive oil and those things, who still um, will have a heart attack and will want to go off statins, but it's like statin, but like they, they genetically produce a lot of cholesterol. And I think people always, yes, it's important to lower your amount of cholesterol intake, but we, there's two ways in which cholesterol is, is, is in our bodies through what we eat and through what our body produces. And there are certain people because of their genetics who produce a high amount of cholesterol at their baseline and no, no amount of fiber that you can eat or non-amount of cholesterol that you can eat will actually lower your cholesterol. And so, you know, and these are the families that we're seeing where people have heart attacks at their, in their thirties um, or, you know, or younger. And so, so, you know, I have had to start some kids on statins who have really just their cholesterol numbers are high and, and it's, it's really hard for the families. And, and sometimes it's a hard discussion because nobody wants to start their kid on a, on a medication. But yeah. when it's, when, when you're, you know, but we have to balance that because there is, there are certain people who, who, who just have this high number and are at extremely high risk of having heart disease early. Um, and yeah. having these sudden episodes that are devastating. Um, so we're, we're learning a lot more. And those and especially sort of going back to what I talked about earlier, these parents who are like, why do we know about this? Um, and I go back to say, because we have such a high amount of heart disease in adulthood, and we know it ties back to earlier, this is why we test now. And and it, it it's sometimes hard for us to be talking about these things earlier, but it's harder to be having these discussions when you're 30 years old and you've had your first heart attack and now yeah. you have scarred heart from it. So we have to, you know, so, so it is important. These screening tests are there for a reason. Um, and they are, they can be life-saving. Absolutely agree. Oh, this was such a great conversation. I know I'm going to have you back again for another episode, um, especially about the congenital heart disease that was requested, but what would be your final message to wrap up to all the parents who are listening? Number one, just like we said, modeling the behavior that you want your kids to see is so important. And and I try to sort of throw it back to the parents that like you want them to live a long and healthy life. They want you to live a long and healthy life. So you want to be there for them. And so so taking care of your own health to model that to them so that they take care of their health, it's it's a trickle down effect. This is how we yeah. this is how we change generational disease that has left families with devastation throughout their lifetime. Like we all, we can all change the, we can change the direction of the health of the, for generations of our family based off of how we model behavior. And so the most you can do 
especially for my parents who are dealing with older kids or teens where it's a real struggle is to do the things you want them to do yourself and be very, you said this in this, I'm so happy you said this, be very positive in your messaging, be very congratulatory, give them a lot of praise for seemingly very small things. Like something I do with my kids is like, we'll get donuts every once in a while. And my son loves donuts and he will, he will eat most of it. And then he'll be like, they'll have a little bit of it left. And he's like, you know what? I don't want the rest of this because I'm full. And I always tell him, I'm so proud of you for recognizing that you don't, you want, it's really yummy and you like it, but you realize that if you eat more of it, you're going to feel bad later and it's not worth it, you know? And so like call those things out when you see those kids, your kid doing something that is from them intrinsically, that's, it's a good thing that they're doing. And don't, don't also expect things to change overnight. Like if we're at a place where vegetables are nowhere in somebody's diet or we're really struggling with activity and movement, don't expect that it's going to automatically in a week get better. It's going to take time. Try the best that you can not to make it a negative thing and really try to make it a positive thing and realize that you're just going to have to put in daily consistent effort to make sustainable changes in the long term. Um, Don't sacrifice your relationship with your child trying to force something on them that they're just not ready for yet. Model it, be positive about it, and eventually they will see that and they'll start to adapt to those changes. I guess that's my biggest piece of advice. Yeah, that is so great. I love talking about this with you. And I love that, you know, on your page, I'm going to attach her Instagram handle. Uh, you you do model this, right? It's just so nice to see that it's possible. It does mean balancing. Like you just said, you can still have donuts. You can still do all the fun mm-hmm. things that we do as parents. You're not restricting your child from these things. That's not what we want you or anyone to do because that's not good for anyone. Um, but it's about the balance. It's about just being a model for your child. And like Renee said, it's just we want to live a long and healthy life for our children as much as we want them to live a long and healthy life. And I, I think that's so beautiful. Thanks again. Again, Renee, I'll talk to you soon. I can't wait to have you on again. I hope you have a great day. Thanks, Mona. This was awesome. Thank you for tuning in for this week's episode. As always, please leave a review. Share this episode with a friend. Share it on your social media. Make sure to follow me at PedsDocTalk on Instagram and subscribe to my YouTube channel, TV. We'll talk to you soon. If you're a parent, I invite you to join us at the Mindful Mama podcast, where it's all about becoming a less irritable, more joyful parent with sometimes hilarious and always thought provoking experts and friends at Mindful Mama. We know that you cannot give what you do not have. And when you have calm and peace within, then you can give it to your children. I'm Hunter Clark Fields, and I can't wait to see you there. Listen in to the Mindful Mama podcast.